0: Welcome to the Dutch Podcast, where integrative medicine providers and patients can learn about hormones and explore the body's most complex communication system. I'm your host, Dr. Jacqueline Smeaton, Chief Medical Officer for Dutch. In this season of the Dutch Podcast, you'll hear from some of the brightest minds in integrative healthcare as we share new perspectives on hormones and challenge a few common misconceptions you might have heard in some circles. We'll bring you cutting-edge education ranging from beginner level to advanced, along with the validated research to back it up. Be prepared to think differently and deepen your understanding of how functional hormone testing can profoundly change the lives of patients. In today's episode, we're talking about all things estrogen, how it's made, what it does in the body, how it's excreted, and why it's so important for your patients. Now you may have a kind of a bad reputation for estrogen. I know I hear that a lot from providers, but in fact, estrogen receptors exist in every cell type in the body, and they're so critically important for our health. We have Dr. Allison Smith, one of Dutch's lead educators,
1: talking with us today all about estrogen. So I think sometimes we say estrogen, but we mean estradiol, or we say estrogen, but we mean xenoestrogens, or we say estrogen, but we mean you know things that interact with estrogen receptors
0: what estrogens are good for, how to measure them in blood and urine, what other metabolites you should be looking at that have impact on a patient's overall estrogen symptoms. And then we wrap up with some of the great things that you can do to help balance estrogen levels. So hang tight. You're going to want to hang into this one. Dr. Allison Smith completed her ND at the National University of Natural Medicine in Portland, Oregon, and she's worked in private practice focusing on primary care, Women's Health and Dermatologic Laser Therapy. Over the last 10 years, she's consulted with providers on literally thousands of cases in the context of hormone testing and brought awareness of testing to providers in clinical practice with consulting, webinars, case presentation, and articles. And now we're really lucky because she leads our esteemed lineup of clinical educators at Precision, home of the Dutch test. So, welcome, Allison or Dr. Smith. Glad to have Thanks. you on. Thank you for having me. I'm so excited to talk about estrogen today. I'm excited to have you here. And I really feel like estrogen really kind of gets maligned in our industry. So I'm glad we're going to spend some time talking about it because really she's the Beyonce of our hormones. That's what I tell my patients. <laughs> she is
1: indeed. <laughs> she is indeed. And, you know, we say estrogen, but estrogens is a family of hormones that interact with estrogen receptors, right? Um So I think sometimes we say estrogen, but we mean estradiol, or we say estrogen, but we mean xenoestrogens, or we say estrogen, but we mean, you know, things that interact with estrogen receptors.
0: Well, this is a really great place to start. Can you help us clarify when people use that umbrella term estrogen? What could they be talking about? You know, what is estrogen and what are the different kind of forms that we think of that we sometimes classify as estrogen?
1: Right. Well, the ma- the main estrogen is estradiol and it binds its receptors with a hundred percent binding affinity. And it's what we kind of measure all other estrogen strength and activity sort of, uh, against. Um, so a lot of times when somebody says estrogen, that's really what yeah. they're meaning is estradiol, especially if you're talking to, you know, a doctor or somebody in the medical field, estrogen is synonymous with estradiol. Um, but in the world of urine testing and certainly here at Dutch, when you talk about estrogen, you know that there are a lot of other um, metabolites of estrogen that have uh, potential to bind estrogen receptors and to turn on the estrogenic activities uh, at the tissue level. And so, you know, when you say estrogen, you're like, yeah. Which estrogen are you talking about? Are you talking mm-hmm. about your very high 16-hydroxyestrone okay. and your, you know, heavy bleeding with your menstrual cycles? You know, maybe we're worried about that. Um, and there are things that we can do about that. So estrogen can mean a lot of different things. That's right. Um, okay. Whole, so go ahead. It's a whole well, family, really, what you're yeah, describing. Exactly. It's a, wow. mm-hmm. it's a sex hormone that all human beings make. You know, it's not something that's limited to just biological females. Biological males make estrogen. We all make estrogen. Um, it comes from the gonads, which used to be my very favorite word, by the way, when we were <laughs> dissecting frogs in middle school. And you remember you cut the gonads open, it's just full of this yellow material. And, you know, the ovaries are gonads, the testes are gonads, and it's a big source of estrogen in the body. Um, but it's made in other body tissues too, you know, our brains make estrogen, our liver makes estrogen, fat makes estrogen. So there's a lot of sort of systemic, um, you know, formation of estrogen. And so, you know, even though our gonads make most of it, especially if you're a a cycling female, we make lots of estrogen at certain times of the cycle. Um, But the action of estrogen is going to really depend on the tissue it's in and the presence of its receptor, right? Estrogen without its receptor doesn't doesn't turn on estrogenic processes. Um, and what are estrogenic processes, but just tissue growth processes. Estrogen grows tissue, right? It maintains I love our, how
0: you summarize that.
1: Yeah. It main, maintains tissue too. Um, you know, I think it's really
0: interesting that you bring up like all the different cell types that make estrogens. And also the fact that receptors exist in pretty much every cell type in the body as well. I think literally every cell type Yep. has been found to have estrogen receptors in it. So it speaks to the importance in both biological males and biological females of this hormone. And I, and so it is baffling to me that it gets a bad rep because it must be so critically important to be so ubiquitous in our
1: bodies. That's right, right. Skin integrity, body shape, it develops our follicles and makes us fertile. It grows our bones and our structural body you know, depends on estrogen for its growth. It's kind of like, you know, if you do you ever bake bread, I always think of like yeast as the estrogen because oh. you know, without it, the your bread is gonna be you know a little dense and wimpy. And you know, <laughs> yeast is kind of the thing that makes it grow and become what it what it is and what we love about it. And that's estrogen. Yeah, it brings Add it to it. life, right? Yeah, I love that
0: comparison. I yeah. love that. So, can you talk a little bit about estrogen's main function in a cycling female? You know, but talk a little bit about how it plays into the menstrual cycle, because we do associate estrogens with the menstrual cycle kind of first and foremost.
1: Definitely. Yeah. Yeah. So our menstrual cycles is essentially broken up into uh, three or four main parts. You have um, the follicular phase, which is broken up into menses flow and the, uh, once the follicle starts to develop, you have your later follicular phase where we really start to make lots and lots of estrogen. Um, it's really the highest estrogen time of our cycle. Once we're off our periods, our estrogens kind of do this upslope as we start to develop the next follicle. And once you have a primary follicle and it's big and beautiful and it's pumping out estradiol and it reaches a peak, that peak speaks to the brain and the brain makes um another signal, which tells us to ovulate that egg. The egg breaks out of the follicle and that ovulation event is at that third phase of the menstrual cycle. And then we go into what's called the luteal phase where, you know, the egg begins, if it's not fertilized, begins to a trees. Um, and we, and, but it makes lots of hormones on its way out for about two weeks. And so we start to make some progesterone to oppose some of our luteal estrogen but, you know, estrogen is is a big part of almost the entire menstrual cycle. It kind of disappears mm-hmm. for a few days while we're bleeding on our period. But but it's it's pretty much a part of our lives always um, to some degree. Uh, and it builds the endometrium. Yeah. Yeah.
0: I think it's that endometrial lining. So it really is like a foundational piece for life in a lot of ways. But it's, it's so, so critical. 100%. So what are some of the, the benefits besides reproduction? What are some of the benefits? Yeah. Of estrogens, and let's talk first about biological females, and you can speak to males if there's yeah. something that you want to call out.
1: Well, I think I think a lot of the general benefits of estrogen are go across both sexes. You know, there's estrogen receptors all over the body. You know, in our skin, uh, estrogen binds its receptor and promotes collagen and elastin and hyaluronic acid, and uh, you know, gives us that skin integrity uh, that we have when we're young. Um, that so many of us are after once we're menopausal or, you know, when estrogen levels drop. Um, estrogen receptors are present in the brain where it upregulates genes that are neuroprotective. It increases our serotonergic tone. Um, you know, in in females who've just had a baby, you might have experienced that drop of estrogen that happens right after you have your baby. And there's there's a lot of weird things that happen with our uh, emotions and our brain function when that happens, because estrogen, when it's fluxing down like that, we lose some of our serotonergic tone and it takes a while for like our MAO activity to bounce back yeah. and, you know, our serotonin activity to resume. And some people, it takes longer than others. And it's very, very normal kind of part of what estrogen does is, is, uh, to promote serotonin in the brain. Um, Estrogens act on the bone and protect from osteopenia and osteoporosis. Even some of the metabolites of estrogen, as it's metabolizing down the, you know, the cascade becoming more water-soluble on its way out, uh, one of its metabolites, 16-hydroxyestrone, has activity at the bone where it promotes osteoblastic activity and bone growth. Um, At a cellular level, in everyone, estrogens are... um, honing our mitochondrial function and they help protect us against oxidative stress. They play into our endocannabinoid system. I mean, it's like, where doesn't it? That's cool. Really? (laughs) Yeah. Benefits are really wide, but like anything, you know, even estrogen kind of needs checks and balances. You don't want, Mm -hmm. you know, uncontrolled growth, for instance. Right. It it needs, it needs its stoppers too. Now I want to
0: hone in on something that you talked about, which is the um, 16 hydroxyestrone not yeah. so much about that specific metabolite, but it's interesting to me that you call that out because when we look at estrogen's activity, like you'd said at the beginning, we primarily think about estradiol, but there's multiple forms of estrogen and then there's metabolites that show up you know, you know in our liver and our urine eventually. Mm-hmm. And those can have activity too, right? So when we yeah. look at estrogen activity... You know, maybe we should be talking more about the whole family. I mean, you must see this a lot on Dutch testing where you see, um, let's say, a clinical picture of higher estrogens Mm -hmm. that might not come from estradiol specifically.
1: Sometimes it's even low, but you go and you look at the metabolism picture and the metabolites are really, really high or the 16 hydroxy is, is really high. And you say, oh, well, there's your there's your estradiol. You're wearing it as Sixteen hydroxyastrone and you know, because there's certain tissues that are going to be really stimulated by that particular metabolite, it, that gives you your area where you can, you know, apply treatment. So, I'm like
0: literally like, laughing to myself about you saying you're wearing it as It's like you yeah. totally just put a different outfit on.
1: <laughs> where do you wear your estrogen? <laughs> so we can't pick
0: it up. We can't pick it up in your blood because it's like yeah. wearing a little
1: disguise. Yes, yeah. it totally is. That's and funny. It's hard to find these things in serum and. You know, we, with serum, you can see what's headed to the tissues, which is really valuable. Um, but with urine, you can kind of get a sense of what happened to estrogen after it was taken up by the tissues and how it piecemealed out into its metabolites. And you can see how the tissues are utilizing these things. And that's that's also an incredibly important piece of information that I think if you're not doing urine testing. You're really missing that. Yeah. Um, It's what drives a lot of people to do
0: dust testing is especially when you see a clinical picture that doesn't correlate with serum results and you're like, what is happening here? And then when you get like a broader picture, it all kind of becomes a lot more clear. It's pretty cool to have that experience as a provider. Exactly. Yeah. So can you talk a little bit about what it feels like for people to have estrogen levels that are too low or that are too high? And I mean that, you know, because we talk about, And we've had other podcasts on kind of that relative estrogen dominance. So you don't need Uh. to go full into that. But if you guys are curious about that, you can pull up some of the prior podcasts. But really help us understand, like,
1: what does it feel like to have too
0: much or too little relatively?
1: Yeah. Well, I think some of the symptoms for high can be similar to low when it comes to brain symptoms, um, when it comes or or. Uh, when I say brain symptoms, I mean like mental, emotional symptoms, mood symptoms. Um, when they're related to estrogen, they can be present when estrogen's too high, and they can also be present when estrogen is too low. You know, sleep problems are kind of the famous one, especially in you know early post menopause when estrogen levels are low and our serotonergic tone hasn't you know found a way to find its new norm yet. You know, people can complain of sleep problems and insomnia Mm. and they don't always totally go away kind of depends on what your sort of serotonin activity was maybe coming in and some of your other neurotransmitter balance and cortisol and all kinds of other things. But, you know, estrogen as such a serotonin player, I feel like, um, you know, that can be an issue high or low, but there are certain symptoms that I feel like are, are very particular for high and low. And it's really for how estrogen acts on, um, our uterine tissue, our breast tissue. Mm-hmm. Um, same thing with male patients. You can have nipple tenderness when estrogens are too high. You're probably not going to have that when estrogen's low. You know, um, our low estrogen symptoms are like you know, your skin is losing its integrity and it's very dry. Um, you might have hot flashes and night sweats because of the loss of some of that serotonergic tone and activity at the at the hypothalamus and your thermoregulatory zone is suffering and you you know, can't get comfortable temperature-wise. Um, so I think there can be very typical high and low presentations. But um, but in general, you might, let's say you run, you run a test on somebody who's perimenopausal and they're having hot flashes and their estrogens are really high. It shouldn't surprise you because it should tell you about that cycling of high and low estrogens that are happening in perimenopause. Even with high estrogens, you can have hot flashes and night sweats. I guess, is the take home.
0: It has to be controlled. That's really cool for you to point out because I think people mistake perimenopause as like a slow, gradual transition into menopause. And in fact, it's kind of like a wacky all over the place (laughs) transition. Oh, so we have a
1: follicle. Let's develop it. (laughs) Nope. Right.
0: You might have have cycles that are high in estrogen and be like, oh, no, this can't be perimenopause. Like, yes, it can perimenopause is like classified by just being like a whack job of hormones, cha- like hormonal that. change yeah. between cycling female and no longer, you know, getting an ovarian response. So yeah. I'm so glad that you call that out. I think that's a common misconception there. Yeah. So why do you think
1: estrogen gets a bad rap? Uh-huh. Well, you know, estradiol binding its estrogen receptors at hundred percent affinity and turning on all those genes that control growth. I mean, I can think of a few practical areas where tissue growth could be uncomfortable and lead to symptoms. The famous ones are like breast tenderness, um, PMS and painful cycles, heavy menses, right, because it's developing that endometrial lining and thickening it up, Um, body fat redistribution and weight gain, even uh, erectile issues for male patients, which can occur when estrogens are too high or when estrogens are too low. Um, those sorts of things. So, uh, you know, estrogen also gets a bad rap, of course, when it comes to certain cancers, because, you know, you can imagine if your cancer sporting an estrogen receptor is potentially a great way to stimulate your own growth, it's a grower of tissues. So, you know, in oncology for estrogen sensitive cancers, controlling estrogen levels in the body and blocking its activity in certain tissues is probably probably the number one approach really for preventing um, estrogen sensitive cancer from recurring. So that would be uh, drugs like tamoxifen. For exactly. Example, tamoxifen. Right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yep. So it's yep. a powerful hormone that can be used for evil by tumors. Um, but I think there's quite a bit of fear around hormones, and hormone replacement because of that. Okay.
0: Now, can you speak a bit to like exogenous hormone or exogenous estrogens too? Because I think another big thing that comes to mind for me that creates a lot of the bad reputation for estrogens is that a lot of environmental pollutants mimic estrogen. So That's it can right. really disrupt estrogen or cause symptoms
1: of excess. Can you just speak a little bit more about that? Yeah, I think it's important to identify sources of xenoestrogens and even estrogenic mold toxins like zearalenone, for instance, just, you know, as a way to cross that off the list because you know when you when you have exposures that are are leading to you know estrogen dominant symptoms, let's say um, breast tenderness, heavy bleeding, fibroid development, whatever it is that's sort of you know the, the tell that that's going on, unfortunately, you're not getting those extra benefits of estrogen at the mitochondria, you know, to downregulate oxidative stress and some of the special powers of estradiol really belong to estradiol and not to these xenoestrogens. You know, mm-hmm. um, so I think you know finding ways of testing for or asking about xenoestrogen exposures and even you know mold exposures can be a, a really important part of a a good 360 treatment plan for somebody or at least for an assessment for somebody who's maybe in for preventive work for estrogen-dominant symptoms or maybe who has a family history of estrogen-sensitive cancers or, you know, has known known exposures in the past, to so really kind of flesh those out and, you know, get them out of their lives if possible so that they can sort of detox and get past those. Yeah.
0: Yeah. And I'm, I'm glad you brought that up. And I'll share a couple of resources that I use in my own practice. I think one challenge, particularly if someone's going down the path of functional testing, is that it can be hard to narrow down what kind of testing to do. And when you're screening for environmental toxins, I think there's like no better example than this because you can get so broad in what you test. And sometimes what comes up isn't what's most clinically relevant either. So um, you have to be like judicious as a clinician to decide how much should you ask your patient to invest because you can literally spend thousands
1: on screening. Absolutely true. Yeah. Well, in a lot of xenoestrogens, if you can, if you can cut off those roots of exposure that the body can naturally clear some of these things on their own pretty quickly. Um, So a lot of times it's about avoidance and you can begin that right after your visit. (laughs) And, you know, yeah.
0: Yeah. Yeah, BPA is a great example where it has a 24 hour half life. So it's like really quickly cleared from the body. The problem is that we're just exposed to it so much over and over and over. Um, but there are great like questionnaire type assessment tools available online that if you searched like environmental toxin questionnaire, it would survey a patient about potential exposures, like Mm -hmm. different occupations that have higher exposures, for example. And that's a great screening tool. And another one that I love just for people that are listening out there is from the book, the toxin solution by Joe Pizzorno, which that book is brilliant. First of all, I mean, the premise of it is that um, and really Dr. Pizzorno has spent the latter part of his career really diving into this is that environmental toxins statistically have a bigger impact on major chronic diseases like type two diabetes, heart disease, you know, metabolic syndrome, than things like diet that we just right. assume are the primary thing. And it's really he goes to the data in that book and it's pretty compelling. But an appendix in the book, actually goes through the data on really basic labs, like things that come from a CBC and a metabolic panel that cost under $25, like platelet count, things like bilirubin, like really basics, GGT. GGT, yeah, (laughs) GGT, yep. And depending on where you fall within the normal range, it is really an accurate predictor of your likelihood of environmental toxins. So I like to use that too, just for people who are listening, because it can help you refine who has a high likelihood of toxicity? And then from there, you can decide, okay, well, it's worth investing to figure out what exactly it is and where it's coming from, or to be like, no, your risk is kind of low of this. Let's look more at estrogen detoxification, for example.
1: Exactly. And that's applicable to to things like fertility medicine or helping somebody to you know, shrink a fibroid or uh, prevent prostate cancer down the road, or, you know, old, there are wide application to that type of assessment. Yeah. Totally. That's yeah. Cool. And so tell me, let's just like let's touch also
0: upon estrogen detoxification. Like I said, we have another podcast going in the deep dive, but I think yeah. that we would be like missing something if we didn't talk a little bit about what happens to estrogen and where yeah. that can kind of go funky for people.
1: That's right. Well, so estradiol, our main estrogen. Um, converts down into everything else. So uh, we think of estradiol as a parent hormone, um, and estradiol can convert into estrone. Estrone can also be formed from our androgens, and so those two are really considered our two-parent hormones. Uh, and estrone has a lower affinity for estradiol receptors than estradiol does because, remember, estradiol is 100% for, for everything. You know That's what we measure all other estrogens against. Um, But estrone has a higher affinity for ER alphas, which are the more proliferative, um, uh, unlocking potential receptors. Um, So it has more potential to bind those than the the ER betas and the other uh, less proliferative ones. So that's one that we consider not a great estrogen to, to be dominant in. So we might look at estrone levels and kind of get a sense of that balance between estrone and estradiol. Um, And then we like to look through the phase one metabolites, which, you know, why do we need to metabolize estradiol? Why can't we just pee out estradiol? Well, it breaks down in two phases. Estradiol isn't very water-soluble, so it's hard for a lot of estradiol to enter the urine. It has to be tagged with, you know, water-soluble groups, essentially. Um, And the first step in our detox pathways is really to add a hydroxyl group. To estradiol. And because estradiol is kind of a complicated structure, there are several different carbons where this hydroxyl group can be applied. Um, and there's the two hydroxy carbon, the four hydroxy carbon, and the 16 hydroxy carbon. And uh, we can measure those three sets of metabolites and kind of get a sense of where you like to put your uh, energy which, down which pathway. And some of those mid level metabolites aren't super safe, I guess, to put it uh, bluntly. The 16-hydroxyestrogens like we were talking about in the context of, um, you know, overdeveloping the endometrium and breast tenderness and prostate health and, you know, that 16-hydroxyestrogen is still binding estrogen receptors. It's still having estrogenic activity in the body. Um, So if that's, that's your main metabolite that you like to make you might be more at risk than the average bear for breast cancer mm-hmm. down the road or mm-hmm. endometrial cancer or prostate cancer down the road it's pretty well studied actually um, so if you make a lot more 16 hydroxys compared to say the two hydroxy estrogens then um, we might think about ways of moving that metabolism to improve your your risk right um, and then there's the four hydroxy estrogens you know when you're applying the hydroxyl group to the The fourth carbon, that can be problematic because uh, that structure is a little more unstable. Um, And it, in the face of oxidative stress um, can form these reactive quinones with sort of neighboring quinones that themselves aren't dangerous, but when you add them together with these 4-hydroxy estrogens, they can go on to damage the DNA. Um, And that can be an initiating process for, uh, it's the very baby beginning of tumor development. So yeah. we want to minimize what's going down the four hydroxys. We want to minimize how much oxidative stress is in the environment, how much, you know, uh, uh, oxidation is around and uh, controlling those two things can help protect us against cancer, hopefully down the road. We're in preventive territory. We're talking about like right. 10 years from now. Um and so, if we can prevent these initiating events, we can put people in a better position. That's phase one metabolism. That's where we're putting. Yeah. What puts what puts people into those different like metabolic preferences? Is it genetic? Is it lifestyle? Both. All. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I think there can be um, some genetic underpinning. Um, the 16-hydroxyestrogen formation is maybe a little bit more nuanced because there are a couple different isoforms of that enzyme that makes 16-hydroxy there's there's one isoform that exists in the intestines and another in the liver so it's not all happening in the liver with 16-hydroxy there's some gut health component strobilome component mm. to 16-hydroxy formation that I hope you go into on uh, one of your other episodes because it's really uh, we see it a lot with dutch testing and uh, autoimmune disease development and uh, and poor poor gut health gut infections Inflammation. Let's mm-hmm. so pull it yeah. back to phase two, just yeah. briefly talk. And I know this gets really complicated. Well, so... phase two is easy, kind of. Yeah. Compared to phase one. <laughs> phase one is the hard one because you're, you know, you could hydroxylate in a lot of different directions. And so, you know, I feel like I talk to people on the phone sometimes and they're like, Is the two hydroxy the bad one? Or is the sixteen the good? And it's like, you know, two is the one the two hydroxies are the ones that we want because they're pretty much pretty inert. The fours and the sixteens, you know, have some caveats, of course. Yeah. Um, but then we want to methylate those hydroxylated um, phase one metabolites, especially the two and the four hydroxy estrogens. They have to get capped off with a methyl group to further um, water solubilize, and then they can leave the body. So we want to make sure that methylation or COMT activity, in particular, is nicely uh, supported and maintained. And that's phase two methylation. Cool. And then yeah. there's a role of the gut too that needs to be working properly to bring 100%. it back to the gut again. I know it. Right. Mm-hmm. Then then we have to make sure the stuff stays on the out and doesn't end up recirculating back in. That's where the gut health comes in handy. Um, you know, there are gut bugs that have, you know, high enzyme activities that can cleave some of our uh, glucuronide groups off of, off of our hormones and we can circulate them instead of sending them out in the stool and that can be kind of a train wreck too so mm-hmm. there's there are many parts of this and then that's kind of considered phase 3 metabolism is the you know that final step of removal from the body
0: cool and I'm grateful for you to for kind of explaining that because I think that leads me into my final question which is I think people often ask well like what can I do to lower my estrogen if I'm in the situation where I have a relative excess Or to boost my estrogen. And the answer is like not that simple because it's so personalized. And I love that you've covered so many aspects that contribute to estrogen levels. Because for one person, it might be increasing magnesium and methyl donors to try to get phase two working better. For others, it might be working to shift what phase one looks like. Or, you know, can you speak a little bit to that?
1: Yeah, exactly. So if you have high estrogen symptoms and you feel like you're an estrogen dominant presentation but you go and do your lab work and your blood work says that everything looks fine and then you do a urine test and you see oh I have high 16 hydroxy estrogens you know the answer wouldn't be that that you need to make less estrogen maybe you need to metabolize it differently so you know there are all kinds of of phase one metabolism supports that could be you know Anything from uh, Im- improving dietary intake of brassica family veggies and ground flax seeds. And uh, there's even a little research around um, a little bit of non-GMO soy in the diet and even green tea, um, uh, drinking it. So there are lots of really great lifestyle things that you can do that can influence your estrogen metabolism. There was a, a neat study, on, I think it was on postmenopausal women, but they uh, were looking at green tea drinkers versus um uh, non-green tea drinkers, and they found a distinct difference in their estrogen metabolism, where the green tea drinkers favored the 2-hydroxy pathway uh, considerably more than those who didn't drink green tea. So there's there's some so neat cool. little associations with foods that I think can make a big difference for people.
0: Green um, tea seems to be one of those like, nature superfoods. There's totally. so many positive studies that come out around drinking green tea that we should probably get off his podcast and go make ourselves (laughs) right now. We should absolutely do that. (laughs) Awesome. Well, Dr. Smith, it's been really awesome having you on and kind of debunking some of the negativity around estrogens and really helping to share more about all the positive things it does for us. So, Thank you so much for coming
1: on today. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. This was super fun.
0: We are so glad you joined us today for this in-depth conversation. If you want to learn how Dutch testing can help you profoundly change your patients' lives, visit us at dutchtest.com providers. There, you can become a provider and gain access to exclusive hormone education, like our new Dutch interpretive guide and the Mastering Functional Hormones Testing Course, a self-paced online course designed to help you become a hormone expert. If you enjoy listening to the Dutch podcast, please help us spread the word by commenting and sharing the show on your favorite streaming app. Also stay connected with us by following at Dutch Test on Instagram and Facebook, where you'll find even more news, education, and provider resources. Thank you again for joining us today. Come back next week for more.